0: We played the World Cup in China and I see that being the, the moment for laundry and Wi-Fi. We were scrubbing our sports bras. I mean, it's like a pretty legitimate tool you need to do your job. And I said, girls, there's got to be a better way, you know. And for anyone in the, the room, um, Wi-Fi you used to have to pay for it in hotels. So it was very expensive early on. Um, but, I, you know, I would come home after that World Cup and I said, I'm, I'm going to go into that federation and I'm going to go in and ask for laundry and Wi-Fi. So we sit down with a head of high performance. He's a good friend of mine now. And I said, look, um, we need laundry and Wi-Fi. It's like really expensive. It's actually costing us to play at the moment. It's 2007. And he goes, okay. I was like, oh, look, what else do we need? <laughs> Culture first. Culture first.
1: Culture first. 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 I'm your host Damon Clotz, and you are listening to Culture First, a podcast where you'll hear stories about why being intentional about your company culture can create a better world of work. Welcome back to another episode of the Culture First podcast. I'm your host, Damon Klotz, and this episode is going to be a record breaker on several fronts. To Courtney Vine to take Sam Kerr and the Matildas, where they've never been before. No Australian team has ever reached a World Cup semi-final.
0: 2023, the year that completely changed the game for women in sport. The Matildas and the FIFA World Cup, Brought in record eyeballs, record crowds. The Matildas, they absolutely united the nation. And young boys asking how they can become Matildas. The incredible skills of our Matildas on home soil as part of this World Cup campaign. Across Australia, more young girls than ever before are taking up the sport. Green and gold fever is red hot across Australia. The Matildas are preparing for the biggest match in Australia's World Cup history. They just seem to be getting stronger and more confident and more relaxed. The Matildas have reduced one of Australia's all the greatest World Cup win. They're the biggest stars in Australian sport and now the Matildas are about to become our best paid female athletes. The Matildas will now earn a minimum
1: $120,000 a year.
0: Matilda has been named Australian Word of the Year.
1: Matilda's mania shows no signs of slowing down. They'll play in front of a packed house for all three Olympic qualifiers in Perth, making it 11 sold out games in a row since July. The Matildas captured the hearts of Australia and the world during the 2023 Women's World Cup. But before millions of people were glued to their screens to see the Matildas secure Australia's highest ever finish at a World Cup, a lot of work went on years before that to create the conditions for high performance. One of the key people responsible for getting women's football to where it is today is Sarah Walsh. Sarah is head of women's football at Football Australia. A former national team player where she won 70 caps for the Matildas, as well as a club career that saw her play in the NWSL in the United States and in the A League women in Australia. Sarah was at the inaugural South by Southwest Sydney with me, and we got to record this conversation in front of a standing room only audience where we even had to turn away a couple of hundred people who were trying to listen in live. In this conversation, you'll learn what the conditions needed for high performance are the importance of the culture of the organization on and off the pitch, as well as the critical role that both equity and equality play when it comes to long-term success. You're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at the policies and the strategies required to broker the historic 2019 collective bargaining agreement, how Sarah has been advocating since her playing days for better off-field conditions to help with on-field performance, and her message for young women who want to change the world. This was the first time that I've ever recorded a podcast in front of a live audience. So the audio is going to be a little bit different than what you might be used to hearing on the Culture First podcast. South by Southwest Sydney though, it was a blast. And for those who weren't able to be there in the room, I'm so glad that we're able to record this moment to share with you now. Let's head over to my conversation with the trailblazing Sarah Walsh, live from South by Southwestern Sydney. Alright, welcome everyone. Uh, Thank you to everyone who has uh, been lining up and has managed to get a seat in this room. Uh, The podcast stage has been a a very small and hotly contested room over the last few days, so I appreciate everyone who lined up early in order to get in for this special recording. To begin this podcast, I would like to start with an acknowledgement of country. We are recording this podcast today in Tumbalong, the land of the Gadigal clan of the Eora Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation and as a demonstration of respect to the traditional laws, customs, cultures and country of the First Nations of this land, I'd like to warmly acknowledge the traditional custodians of Gadigal country and show respect to elders past, present and emerging. What a special experience it is to be here at South by Southwest to record a live episode of the Culture First podcast. So for people listening in the future, there is a room full of people listening to this. This is the first time ever that we're doing a live taping of the Culture First podcast. So thank you all for being part of this experiment. You might see when we do edits or when we, you know, stuff up or something and you see it first and then you're not going to hear it in November when it actually comes out. So that is all good. Today on the show, I'm joined by Sarah Walsh. Sarah is the head of Women's Football Australia and a former Matilda. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today on the Culture First podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. It's fantastic. Thank you.
1: So, yeah, the line is definitely not because there is tens of millions of fans of the Culture First podcast, but if anyone has listened, thank you. Uh, It's definitely the Matilda's effect. Um, But for those who haven't heard of the Culture First podcast, Culture First is a show brought to you by the team at Culture Amp, and my name is Damon Klotz, and I've been with Culture Amp as one of the founding employees, and it's my role to have conversations to try to create a better world of work. We also hope that through that, we can also create a better world by focusing on work as the lever. And I'm confident that this conversation today will be both inspiring and make that promise a reality. So I usually start my episodes by saying, all right, let's get started. It became an accidental catchphrase but I thought with you here today, maybe we should do a here we go, here we go, here we go. Now, are you allowed to still say that as an administrator and not a Matilda?
0: What is that chant? I'm not sure what the chant. That's at here the end go, of the Matilda yeah. song. Which, On the bus. Oh, yes, it is. Hey, it's a long time ago. <laughs> <clears throat> I was part of the team that actually created that and Lydia Williams was in it as a kid who has to do the oi, 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 and she's still doing it. That's It's like she's been there for 15 years doing that, so, yeah.
1: There we go. That felt more fitting than maybe an, all right, let's get started. So the other thing that I wanted to say that, um, so I had the chance to uh, represent Culture Amp and the Victorian government at Southbound Southwest in Austin this year. And I was just like you out there trying to line up, getting into a session. And there was one thing that I noticed more than anything else, that the people on stage cared deeply about what sneakers they were wearing. It was like such a thing and I I was convinced that a lot of the people were wearing box fresh sneakers which is a huge blister like waiting to happen. So as a former Nike athlete uh, Sarah and I decided last night that we're both going to rock some Nike kicks so we just want some acknowledgement of how hard we've tried to really bring that to life. So comfy shoes. Comfy shoes are key. Yes it was quite a walk to get here. So Over the last few years of hosting this podcast, I've had the chance to interview people from all walks of life. Some episodes are with thought leaders like Esther Perel and Simon Sinek. My episode last week was with one of the executive producers and writers from the TV show Succession. And we talk about all the different ways about workplace culture and how to book culture first. I have a tradition that I sort of start with when I open up a podcast episode. And the question that I ask is about moving past someone's job title so we can understand a little bit more about someone. So the question that I've asked all these guests is, How do you describe your work to a curious 10-year-old? Now, we've had some funny answers over the years, including someone say, why is this curious 10-year-old like following me around the hills of England and like, can they leave me alone? That was (laughs) Oliver Berkman talking about mortality. But for you, I thought this is a bit of a special episode. I want to do something different. Rather than just a stranger who's come up to you and gone, excuse me, what do you do for work? If you could have a conversation with 10-year-old Sarah Walsh, how would you describe what you do for work today?
0: Oh, okay. Um, you know that thing that you love more than anything in the world? Um, turns out that you being the only girl at the club and in your team is actually not how it's meant to be. You should be able to play with, with young girls and you should be able to play on the good pitches um, your parents, you might not know it yet, but are hearing lots of kind of slurs on the sidelines and um, they've probably shielded you from this, but this is really not how sports should have been designed. So I spend my, my time, and not just for women, for, for um, you know minority groups and communities in trying to make sport better for everybody so everybody can enjoy uh, and participate in it.
1: I feel like 10-year-old Sarah was probably a little bit overwhelmed, but also very proud. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: a tough question, that one. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a live podcast, so I'm like, why do not? We just like turn up the heat a little bit more. Yeah, right? yeah.
0: I actually tested on my ten-year-old uh, um, nephew, and uh, apparently they know a lot more than we think. Yeah, he said, "You mean equality?" I was like, "Yep." <laughs> <laughs> you got it, but he, he obviously, you know, uh, his mother's my sister, so yeah.
1: <laughs> the kids are certainly growing up in a way that I think is going to show us all what 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 the future can look like, which is inspiring. So probably the understatement of the year will be that this has been a massive year for Football Australia, for the Matildas, for women's sport, and it's also been a massive year for you personally. I'd love to maybe level set with the audience. And this is a question that I encourage a lot of people to ask their team as a check-in question, which is, if I really knew you today, what would I know? Because it gives us a little bit more context about the humanity of what's happening inside of someone as well as we're in a workplace. So and on any given day, you might get a different answer, right, from someone depending on what's happened that day. So they might have had a stressful commute, maybe the, the, their child didn't sleep that well. It's a way to bring that humanity into a workplace conversation. So, Sarah, if I really knew you today, I know we've been on a whirlwind of getting to know each other over the past sort of 24 to 48 hours in the past few weeks, but if I really knew you today, what would I know?
0: I think uh, generally speaking, I'm someone with, uh, it's very determined, high levels of ownership, commitment, someone that asks a lot of questions, um, naturally curious, but I think you would know that it's been a long three years and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the holiday in January that I have planned um, to really just sit back and kind of process what happened really. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, it has been a whirlwind. A few things that you didn't mention that I thought might be some fun facts and we've already talked about how much random research I do for every guest, but you used to beat Jana Pittman in the hurdles growing up.
0: I did. Uh, well, I see, yeah, who told you I used to beat her? I, there's one photo where I'm on the number one dice and she's on the, the number two. She doesn't look very happy, by the way. <laughs> also high levels of commitment, determination, and um, I actually met her more recently. She didn't remember me. Um, <laughs>
1: Was, that's because you only saw the back
0: actually. of your head, right, because yeah, yeah, you were yeah. always in front. So. It was actually 60-metre hurdles, so I was, it's at the point of where you're 12, 13 and my parents are like driving me everywhere at this stage. It's athletics this weekend, it's football this weekend and um, and I, it, what people don't know is I absolutely hated athletics. I was just good at it and I was very quick but I was very sh- not much has changed. I'm slow and short now but I was very quick and short and so the 60-metre hurdles were kind of, you know, manageable. And Yana was just like gliding over him because she was always tall. Um, and you know, I never really got to know her, but we would always be at state meets playing each other, or well, running against each other. And um, I think I come second to her in my last meet. But my my mum and dad were like, "Look, do you? What do you want to do? We can't keep doing both. Um, it's taking up a lot of the time." And I was like, "Oh, football, hundred percent." But um, yeah, shame she didn't. Re- She's gone to do amazing things, Yana. She's a doctor. Um, She's got six children, I think. Yeah, she's a pretty amazing woman. But, um, yeah, interesting.
1: The other one that maybe people don't know, or maybe they know that you have the nickname Stinger, but it wasn't because you were like this venomous striker in the box scoring goals. It was because one day you were at the surf and someone said, there's heaps of stingers in the water. And you were like, oh, yeah. And you swam anyway, and then you came out with a huge stinger on your leg.
0: Actually, my friend said we've been in here for hours and no one's been stung. And I was like, okay. So I'm not someone that usually takes big risks, but calculated. So that seemed uh, like a good one. But yes, yeah, is stuck in go. some circles. Yeah.
1: So the success on and off the pitch this year was a journey that started a long time ago. Many people in the media that have said that the Matilda success of 2023 was a 40-year success story in the making, and you've played a critical role throughout that journey. I'd love to maybe take the audience back to a few key moments that have allowed you to sort of sit in this seat today. You said that after watching your brother play football, you wanted to give it a go at age five, but your mum whom I've had a chance to do a little bit of background research with, said that she wanted you to try gymnastics you call or my dancing. <laughs> I'm just saying. like,
0: And that's something she'd do pick up the phone too. So, <laughs> Great.
1: So you were insistent on playing football just like your brother. Can you share what it was like growing up as the only female on the team?
0: Yeah, look, I um, I'm glad you've spoken to Mum because it turns out I don't have a great memory, and and honestly, when it, when she tells me stories, it's like I wasn't there because, um, in a lot of ways, like we joke about, um, <clears throat> I made that joke earlier about what was said on the sidelines. My mum and dad had to listen to a lot of stuff back in 1987, where you know your young daughter is not only the only girl on the team, she's the best girl on the pitch, she's the best girl at a club. I'd constantly win you know, player of the match, club of the match, and it really rubbed parents up the wrong way. You know, in my role now, not much has changed about parents actually in a lot of circles. So, Um, but, yeah, I I really don't remember any of that because my parents shielded me. But um, now when I look back, uh, I never got changed at the the club ground because it was a boys' change room. Um, Didn't bother me because i just get changed at home and and didn't really know that they were getting changed and socialising. So... Um, I'd always played on the good pitches because I think I was an exception, you know, not the rule. Um, That all stopped when I couldn't play with boys anymore until age 13. But um, I enjoyed the Beckham doco the other day because uh, I actually wanted to be Eric Cantner. (laughs) Like... Young what girls that, what that want, does that surprise me now? Young girls today want to be Steph Catley's, Ellie Carpenters, like how beautiful. I absolutely wanted to be Beckham and Cantona. Like I had every single Man United shirt. I thought I was going to play for Man United. Parents never told me. Best parents ever. Like let me dream. I also want to be a Socceroo. So um, that, that old Spew shirt was my favourite kind of the checkered Socceroo shirt. Oh. Um, so <laughs> it just, it's come a long way but I... I um, I only really remember the great memories of always carrying a ball everywhere and, and having that facilitated by my, my family. But um, yeah, so much has changed now for the better.
1: So, fast forward from being that five year old playing with all the boys, you then were called up for the Matildas at age 15. Mm. But by age 18, you'd already had three knee reconstructions. Mm. And then you weren't able to make your debut for the Matildas until age 21 when the doctors had already told you that you should probably give this up. Yeah. What was it like to prove them all wrong when you scored your first goal on debut for the Matildas?
0: Yeah. You know, um, they were like tough years, but I think they've, uh, when I think about some of the challenging times, was making the national team pretty early actually. There's only a couple of players that made it that that young, which is Caitlin Ford's one of them, um, Sam Kerr's one of them, And, um, it was just, yeah, it was heartbreaking to make the squad. And then, you know, throughout my second one, I missed the Sydney 2000 Olympics. So, um, got a pretty cool story about, uh, I remember I, I decided I wasn't going to watch anything. Um, I was about 16 at the time, not going to watch one bit of the Olympics. It's literally in my city. So obviously that's quite hard to do. We didn't have social media, thank God. And, um, and I thought, oh, I'll watch one thing and it was Kathy Freeman. And so I um, turned on Kathy Freeman and that's the thing I needed to get me up to, to push through that second one. Um, unfortunately, I had one more after that, uh, which was the thing that, I, you know, I said I needed a break and we were talking off camera, like we, you have these pivotal moments in your career. And um, I remember sitting after the surgeon had kind of given me my x-ray and he had really poor bedside manner. I mean, to be fair, he'd, he'd just done my third knee reconstruction and he was like, well, What are you doing to yourself? And he threw the x ray on the bed and um, he left. And I looked at mum and dad and I said, You know, I was like broken and said, um, Should I stop? And they said, That's up to you. Yeah. And I think that that kind of allowed me to the space to make my own decision. And three years later, yeah, um, which is quite late to debut at 21, I debuted and you know, played for the national team for a good eight, nine years. And the beauty of going through all of that, I mean, I do wonder who I would be without having all that adversity because I was a 15-year-old that just made the national team. Like I was, nothing could stop me and teaches you pretty, you know, severe humility and um, gratitude. So I, I, it's not even a, a phrase that i use just to be cute but every single time i put on my jersey I treated it like my it was my last and it probably said more in the trust I had in my knee but um you know I did that over 70 times with you know goals and I got to really enjoy that because I soaked it up so when i retired it felt like I'd had eight bonus years so it was uh that's how I, I viewed it
1: and to go to your very last match as a Matilda where you also scored, so you scored in your first and your last match, at that time you were also studying a business degree and you uh, said that like maybe you'll have a sort of career post-football working for Coke or working for Nike. Did I
0: say that? You did. Oh, <laughs> Nothing wrong with those brands. I'm just saying, where was I going with that?
1: <laughs> I feel like this is like a This Is Your Life where I have your book and like you have no memory of it and I'm trying to like bring these back for did you. Did mum
0: tell you that? <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: She's listening right now. I've got her on speaker. Um, So could you imagine the career that you would end up having to now sort of like be in the role that you are when you like literally put the boots down for that last time?
0: Yeah. Look, I'd I'd like to say that it was all very deliberate, Um, but I'm not surprised that I ended up in the Federation. you know, when I, I look back and I do these talk tracks and and take people up to the moment where we reached equality in 2019, man, there's some funny stories before we got there. In 2007, I see that we played the World Cup um, in China, and I see that being the the moment for laundry and Wi-Fi. Uh, you know, I said that I like asking questions, but I, um, you know, we had this one trip in China and. We were we were scrubbing our um, sports bras. I mean, it's like pretty legitimate tool you need to do your job. And and I just said, I said, girls, there's got to be a better way, you know. <laughs> and for anyone in the, the room, um, Wi-Fi you used to have to pay for it in hotels, so it was very expensive early on. Um, but I, you know, I would come home after that World Cup, and I said, I'm I'm going to go into that federation, and I'm going to go in and ask for laundry and Wi-Fi. And the PFA, our players' union, said don't go in by yourself, let us come with you. I said, I've got it, got it. I quite don't regret this moment. Um, So we go up the left, I was with one of my teammates and we sit down with the head of high performance, he's a good friend of mine now, and I said, look, um, we need laundry and Wi-Fi, it's like really expensive, it's actually costing us to play at the moment, it's 2007. And he goes, okay. I was like, oh, look, what else do we need? (laughs) (laughs) Walked out, girls, we got laundry and Wi-Fi. And so, like, I was always asking questions, you know, throughout my time as a player and um, just always wondering about the inner workings of the Federation and how decisions were made. And so, you know, it was a 2010 moment, which was four years later, where this is probably where the moment that really hit it for me. Uh, we won the Asian Cup and, you know, it's only been done once since. Even with the golden generation we have, they weren't able to do it uh A couple of years ago, but the men did it um, on home soil, very hard to do. And we did it and we thought that would translate into more investment. And we got home and there was kind of, I don't know why we thought it would just translate into this magical, you know, audience that we were going to come home to. And there was one camera there um, and nothing changed around uh, paying conditions. And I just thought, oh, wow, like, I don't know why I thought results was going to be the thing. So, you know, I'd made that decision then that I was going to do something about it retired two years later and kind of transitioned into the, the federation
1: we're going to touch more on your I guess your role and sort of the changing nature of what is needed and continues to sort of change within football but one of the main topics that we wanted to sort of speak about today was the conditions for high performance there's obviously been a lot of articles written about sort of the Matildas post thing saying like here's all the things that made them successful but now we're actually going to hear from you in terms of what were the conditions required for high performance and I think from like a corporate sort of perspective, performance management hasn't always had a very good reputation or been the sexiest subject to talk about at work. But when organizations have a really thorough strategy and communicate it effectively, performance can end up being a really core part of how you create an equitable workplace experience and create an environment where people can actually do great work and be recognized for it. So when I think about performance, I think a lot about things like fairness, transparency, accuracy. Goal alignment, tracking, development, coaching, feedback, accountability and recognition. All of these things are really key to having a very human experience in the workplace where you get recognised for your work. I'd love to learn maybe how you think about performance considering you've spent your entire career so focused on high performance in order to achieve at the highest level.
0: Yeah, I think... um it's a really good question, and um, if you don't mind, I'll just go back a little bit because I think you know from my time as a player, and then looking at what we just did in 2023, I think there's some fundamentals that need to take place within the organisation itself to be able to deliver what we delivered, and um, and I'll get I'll get to your question, but in 2018 uh, we actually had constitutional change through uh, FIFA. Uh, governance intervention, which actually meant that we would now have 50-50 on our board, 40-40-20 constituted. Um, and I believe that then started uh, a culture change within the business. We we now had more often than not 50-50 um, on our board, so we had, you know, uh, right, right voices and right people in the room. Um, and then 2019 we brokered the first uh, equal pay deal. Um, really important because... Um, what we witnessed in 2023 is, is actually the goal beyond equality. I actually see equality as being the baseline now um, for, for sports that are just struggling to reach it or even build a pathway. You just simply can't deliver what we just delivered. So I, I think that's crucial because not only did it, you know, people see it as the pay deal as well. It was about support and conditions. So they spend a large majority of their time, they're one of the most uh, highest travelled national teams in Australia. They live in UK, everywhere, Europe. We bring them back home, you know, try to balance uh, where they play the national team um, games to build the brand here but also for high performance, not have them travel too much, so host games in Europe. but for us, you know, they need, absolutely need a business class as part of recovery. They need uh, standards around accommodation, standards around SNC. I mean, we, we're only just starting to scratch the surface on women's bodies and biology, high performance. For such a long time, we've been treated like little men. Um, but actually, we're learning so much. And so that was the start of us actually um, ensuring that they could perform to, to a to a level. Um and, and then just one last thing is obviously we won the rights to host in 2020 and I think a lot of people believe that the success was actually because it was a mega event. Um, but I can pretty much assure you if the Matildas that are out in the group stage, I'm not sitting here on this couch talking you, to you today. So um, all of these things need to be in place and um, where COVID was a really bad time for our business, it actually gave us the opportunity to rebuild the business with the Matildas at the centre. Um, it's likely that you'll never get that moment again. Um, and, I'll, and I'll give you an example. So we'd broken the, the equal pay deal in 2019 and COVID hits and we stood down, like everyone, every business, particularly sport, on its knees. We stood down 70% of our workforce and I was one of, the, I guess, the lucky ones that were in a very small room of, of executives deciding how we were going to keep the lights on. That's where we're at. And we made a decision to pay our Matildas their full salary every single one of them. And that was controversial. When, when there's a culture change within the business, we'd, we'd already talked about equality. This is this is kind of moving into an equity space, right? We weren't paying the Socceroos their match payments. But we knew that if we were, were actually true to the strategy and we were committed, we need to do it with conviction. And, and actually in some circles it was really uh, unpopular. We weren't paying some of our own staff. They are our staff, but, you know, and at that same time, he won the rights to host. So um, that allowed us to to build for three years. And when you talk about high performance, it's about um, it's allowing the players in a, in a sporting context to have everything they need. I think there's some fundamentals in my view um, from being a player, but now also as an executive. Um, I really believe that uh, every single person, whether it's in your team or, or your business, has to Absolutely believe in the endpoint, the vision. They do. They can be motivated differently. They can have different levels of buy in. If they absolutely don't believe in the endpoint, or, you know, and they might have different versions as to how you get there. But for me, if they're not on the bus, it's going to be very difficult. Um, the second piece is uh, I think individuals within that really need to understand their role um, as an individual, but also um, their role as how that. You know, inputs into a broader collective. I think that's in a, in a team environment, it is so absolutely crucial. Building on that, they need to understand their value. So, role and value, I think, are two different things. And I think I'll give I'll give an example. Um, uh, Courtney Vine, you know, she's we never thought she would have been called upon to do it to, to deliver a tenth penalty shootout in in one of the biggest games of the Matildas, but you prepare for it. Um, and, and I don't want to suggest she's the 23rd player, but how your 23rd player feels about themselves, their value, and what their role is, is in a team is, is 10 times more important how Sam Kerr, the, the captain of the team, feels. And, uh, you know, that is the role of the coach. Uh, I think we're going to talk about Tony, but that's just not some fun fun tagline. Like at some point you have to call on that player. And actually uh, the chances are that you might might not actually um, that they won't even touch the grass but they're the ones that, at dinner breakfast lunch and tea around the the ones that do and they need to really bring the energy and um, maintain that level of culture you're talking about um, and then I think we touched on making sure that they have all the tangibles that they need to to perform and I think once you if you get those things right um, and constantly check in on on are we still aligned on where we're going and I've got to say there were some really uh, hairy moments over the the three-year period because the on-field strategy we put in front of them was brutal.
1: Yeah, And the players had famously backed themselves in 2015 going on strike, asking for greater conditions and then in 2019 Sam Kerr said like we're not asking for millions of dollars, we're just asking for everything that's possible from an environmental perspective to bring trophies to this country. So then you back them in that moment, which I think when you talk a lot about uh, sort of trust within an organization, trust gets built over a very long period of time. But if you break it in one of those moments, it can be really hard to sort of get it back. So I think the other thing that's really interesting is you've got this tagline of 23 for 23. It's really easy to have taglines inside of your organization saying this matters, but until that 23rd person is actually called upon and has to demonstrate that value. That tagline means nothing unless that's actually true when it comes to the behaviour that you need in that moment.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's um, yeah. Uh, I'll never forget Tony Gustafsson's um, his first interview, and oh, it was, it was seven a.m. in the morning. I think he was in Sweden, it was six in the morning. It was during COVID, so we'd won the rights to host the World Cup. I mean, we we had all these brilliant opportunities to start from scratch. It kind of rarely happens, but COVID had had given us this opportunity. So we didn't have a coach at the time either. So we we kind of got this blank canvas. And um, I remember how I felt after his interview. I was just like, had hair. I actually just wanted to go out and play. Like I looked around at my colleagues and went, wow. So, um, you know, we'd already kind of thought about the on-pitch strategy. I think we're going to talk about that. But Tony, he come in, I mean, he is is equal parts leadership coach, equal parts teacher, equal parts coach because there's fantastic coaches out there, um, tactical. That was, that was there for everyone to see. He was an assistant coach. He won a medal at, with the US in 2019. Um, but that actually wasn't what uh, really stood out for us. It's, he was completely in line with uh, how we viewed success um, and I think that's the first time as a business also and I think it's quite rare in sport here in Australia and, and globally that, that success is much more than making a semi-final um, because, you know, how you socialise success and, and objectives and measures really drives behaviours, not just within that high performance unit, but the business. And, and I think the how we got there was actually, it was actually more important than the end result. Um, we wanted Australia to feel proud of this team and, you know, you've got to think about all the levers that you need to pull. When we talk about United Nation, we used to use these words. What does that mean? Well, that means that we absolutely at all costs need to protect that half hour after a match. Like their their time and their schedules are down to the minute, um, you know, and there's always this push-pull between the the SNC team and recovery team that want to get them into the ice bars, but that's part of their DNA. They spend time with fans, so... Um, things like that
1: yeah. I'd love to maybe touch a little bit on why Tony was the right person to bring in and maybe a lot of people might not know this but like he's a lot more than just a football coach he has this diverse skill set that you kind of touched on so why was it so critical to get a leader who cared about how you end up winning not just what the goal was?
0: Yeah well we were hosting a, a home world cup we saw the opportunity I mean this beautiful thing happens when you actually reach equality. A lot of people were sitting around going, well, what What next? You know, like what, I'm like, well, now we actually get to innovate. We get to actually think about how we build the brand of this team and how we, you know, increase investment and see where where it takes us because we don't really have any blueprints for this. So, um, and, and that, you know, that come down to the selection of the coach. So, uh, you know, we, ha- we had... Um, I don't know how many is this Chatham House rules. No, no. I think it's um it's important that when we talk we talked about success. You know, there's absolutely on field success, of course. Um, and we never socialised this during the World Cup or pre World Cup. I don't think I ever answered the question. Um, What does success look like? And the media are so desperate for us to say it. But if we are to say semi-final out loud, the players hear it, we hear it, and it's not all about making the semi-final. Um, And we had some really hard work to do around, uh, you know, bringing Australia on the journey. Australia love winners. We are one of 210 nations that play the game, 210. There's, There's not too many sports that actually have that much competition. We were 11th um by the end of the the three-year period so we are not favorites to win this thing so we kind of were trying to manage expectations but also build good behaviors not just within the team but in in the ecosystem that supports it as well that hey um you know uh we do believe that this team's starting to transcend beyond results and we showed that like you wouldn't even know if the team lost at, at most of their the you know the atmosphere around the the grounds when a team loses wins it's exactly the same for Matilda's um you know uh, fan base but so yeah we sat down and, and talked about what the on-field piece looked like um I was in charge of the driving the legacy plan and um it's such a buzzword uh, I actually looked for I'm, I'm very big on not reinventing the wheel and so I looked around to see you know what had worked in the past whether it was olympics or overseas and I could not find anything that was one started three years before the event itself and two um had been delivered by the the federation it's usually delivered by the loc that runs the tournament which actually doesn't make sense because they wind up three months later um and I was like well this can actually just be our three-year strategy for the business, but also for the game. And so, we built it, and the Matildas were at the heart of that. And uh, we would basically ask questions, pointed questions around legacy and, and how the coach felt about legacy and what that meant. And um, you know, Tony absolutely blew it, blew us away with with, with his answers around. Um, I mean, because he because he's such a leadership. Uh, coach he he would talk about that he doesn't see equality and you know uh, fighting for equality even though this this team had reached that they're now thinking about doing that for other teams who don't actually have the same they're, they're very big uh, voices with platforms and he said I don't see that as a distraction I see that as something that fuels them so I'll be lighting a, a, a match under that we were like oh wow and we said, How do you feel about having a, um, a female assistant coach? Um, you know, we've got some amazing female coaches here because we've got such an issue with underrepresentation of women in our game. Um, this is our biggest platform. It's going to be the biggest uh, event, second biggest event behind the Men's World Cup. I need a woman sitting next to you because our numbers are low on coaching courses. She's, she is the best we have. Can you mentor her? And he goes, Absolutely. Took her under his wing and, you know, now Mel's kind of ready to fly onto onto something, you know, bigger. But, um, yeah, it, it was we talked much more about what good looked like off the pitch than we did on the pitch and he was the right person.
1: One of the off the pitch, I guess, things that you had to implement, which I think there's been a, quite a bit of talk about in the media, was your parental policy, which allowed Katrina Gorey to actually, you know, not only have a child but also take that child with her. And in like have children within the camp. So, why is something like that so critical when you think about the behind the scenes kind of like HQ policies, like something like a parental policy that many organisations have? Why was it so important for you to think about this in terms of a performance lens as well?
0: Did Did anyone watch Katrina play? Yeah. Like, honestly, um, I was just reading the parental policy, uh, and you know, we're, we're just gonna, we're going to evolve it. Um, we learn a lot over the past four years. We're coming into a new CBA now, and I was just reading it and there was this one line in there that says um, the player because it's uh yeah it's it's for the the um the the primary parent needs to uh, be able to given all the opportunity to come back as the player they were prior to carrying the child. I was like, oh my God, she'd come back better like <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to." you know slightly amend that she did because um when women are you know when people invest in women um i've got to say that it's it's a real lightning rod for the change i had never been told so much in my life that children did not belong in in high performance environments they are distractions um it's risky and it, it makes me think sport is this in this funny period you know like my wife works in tech, actually, and so she's constantly questioning why we do things the way we do them. And I'm like, it's because we're sport and, you know, we're, we're slow to move. But, you know, we, this three years, we really kind of just uh, had the notion of, you know, testing and failing. And not that we did that with Katrina, but we were just in this space. And I remember talking to one of my male colleagues, actually, three years ago. And um, the irony is, he's speaking to someone that's also from the high performance space. So he's from the high performance space, and he just he said, "It won't work. It just won't work." You know, where's 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 the evidence that it, that it actually works? I'm like, well, if we haven't trialed it, how do you know it doesn't work? Yeah, so yeah, right, yeah, but but that's how startups operate, right? Like you're 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 opening something new and and breaking new ground. And we had a great CEO on board that just said, "Just go trial it." And um, But this is why coming back to the coach selection, never did we have to ever be concerned about how Tony felt about it because he's completely on board with us trialling new things. And um, if you've seen the Disney docuseries, he talks about how uh, Katrina and Little Harper, who at the end of all this was considered the 24th player, um, you know, has changed the high-performance environment, changed his understanding of it. You know, as a player, you, you drift in and out of your high-performance mode and you absolutely, absolutely do not need to be in that 24-7 for two weeks. Sometimes the, the camps are longer. It's tiring and draining and it's a waste a waste of energy. And Katrina Gorry actually used to be like that as a player. She was a little bit of an overthinker and now she's a mum. And, and we learnt so much. I mean, she was... She was fantastic. I, we learned so much about needing a breast free, breastfeeding room within the locker room and, um, you know, not only did we have the care and, and fund... Um, Katrina Gorey's mum to be there but um, all the other additional support that that she needed Um, but I think that the key one is is the return to play because that looks very different for a female athlete and and we really just were guided by her and now have a really strong policy it might look different for the next woman it's actually um a parental policy so the socceroos can also access it um in terms of you know being the primary carer uh, up until the age of two and so um I actually recently had a chat with that male colleague again and he's like, touche.
1: <laughs> I feel like he needed a mic just to drop on his foot at that time and just walk away.
0: I'm here to bring everyone on the journey.
1: <laughs> culture first means culture amp. I'm Didier Elzinger, co-founder and CEO. Together with thousands of customers around the globe, we're co-creating a better world of work. That means enabling leaders to drive their most impressive performance outcomes with real-time insights, data, and predictions. Our podcast is called Culture First, because when you get culture right, your business succeeds at a rate never thought possible. Join us at cultureamp.com to see what it's all about. So I'd love to talk about maybe the key partnerships you had to really build inside of the organization in order to bring some of these changes to life. And having trust among senior executives is is critical in order to really drive fundamental change like you did. But you also need to ensure that sort of individuals of all levels feel like they're sort of part of that journey as well. So you're navigating like key exec stakeholders, but also you're representing so many people who are looking up to you to sort of be that change how did you navigate, I guess, the politics of sport and building those strong relationships with the other exec members at Football Australia?
0: Yeah, well, I'll go back to the, the point I made around everyone being on board with the vision. Um, yeah, it's you, you soon kind of work out who might not be so okay with the a business. there's a few people
1: who aren't on the bus. <laughs>
0: They're on the bus, yeah. um, but
1: they press the stop. <laughs> no
0: no i think it's we're talking about culture change we'd for so long been a business that been all about the socceroos it's all we'd done i mean when i first moved into the organization i learned very quickly as to why i wasn't feeling the love as a player um or, or even like the the level of care around decision making or lack of strategic you know thinking for scheduling or um you know investment to high performance and pay aside but um you know, they would have really felt that, the players, on the end of it. But um, it, there's culture change within that because um, not only the Socceroos had kind of given up, and they did in 2019, they absolutely gave up uh, an increase in pay. Um, they're paid well enough already in the club ecosystem. That's still their money. Um, that's still the, you know, the funds that they'd earned to play for the country. They gave it up. And, uh, you know, the irony of this is that, you know, our broadcast rights off the back of this World Cup are going to be so much higher and they will also see the benefit of that. So I look at it as like a small kind of pause that they took to, you know, for a greater gain, um, to have two strong national teams. And, um, I think if you were selling that in at the start, it'd be hard to, to buy into it. But, um, so yeah, look, I think, uh, I said that, you know, the CEO come in and, and the, you know, COVID had hit, so the team was pretty much on board with, with the direction and that doesn't mean everything's harmonious, to be honest, and you talked about trust. I think one of the key things is when you are, I mean, as I say, we're not used to innovating and trialling new things, but, um, you know, I think it's about respect and creating a safe space for, uh, you know, respectful debate. And and we had that many a times about the Matildas. Um, I'll never forget one time we were starting to move into bigger stadiums and there's a little bit of risk in that, right? Like the first time we did it, it was USA, so got the right opponent. It's going to be a big following. Let's put him in Stadium Australia. And we're like, oh, you know, 80,000. What what is 30,000? Like can we get to 30,000? We'll sit around thinking about, oh, we'll get like pre-match entertainment and um, someone come up with, oh, I know someone from the Wiggles. And I was like, "What?" It depends <laughs> which Wiggles, right? Yeah. And our CEO's like, "Sarah, hear him out." I'm like, "Okay." He goes, "Well, you know, we can get him. I know, I know this guy, and um, they're they're doing a, a world a world tour for eighteen year olds that um, used to watch the Wiggles. I can't remember what the tour was called, but um, they're happy to come and play to the thirty thousand, um, and we think they'll, you know." bring some kind of new families. And and it didn't sit well with me straight up, right? We're trying to build a brand of women's empowerment and we're we're putting them up against a a children's entertainment product. So I was like, you know, it doesn't feel good um, but we trialled it because I thought, you know, we've got 40 years' history with this team. There actually are a core group of fans. I don't want them alienated but you know what? Let's trial it. We sold an extra 10,000 tickets. (laughs) And as it turns out, the hardcore Matildas fan base grew up watching the Wiggles. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're looking to do that stuff again, but we wouldn't have known unless we trialled it. But it was done in a respectful, thoughtful way. Yeah. Um, we didn't have the data to say that it was right, but I got to voice my opinion that it didn't feel good. Um, you know, it, it didn't feel like we were, we were really truly valuing the Matildas brand and what they stand for them. And we actually checked with the players first and they're like, yeah, fine. So we did it,
1: yeah. Was John Varnum not available that week? He was not, no. (laughs) Probably retired and come back or something else. So. Yeah. So maybe broadening to media and storytelling and the role that it does have in both a brand but also high performance, you know, stories are one of the way that I think you really captured the hearts and minds of future generations. Uh, Just yesterday at South by Southwest Sydney, there was a session on the film track with one of the co-creators of Drive to Survive about how storytelling has fundamentally changed how people consume sport He even joked that some people don't even want to watch the Formula 1 anymore because they don't want to have spoilers for Drive to Survive next season. (laughs) So the media has now fundamentally really changed how we think about it. As part of the 2023 World Cup, you partnered with Disney to go behind the scenes of the Matildas and provide a real insight into the day-to-day realities of what it meant to be a modern female athlete. Why was it so critical to work with such a huge partner like that to capture both the moment in time, but also know that you would have the documentation of the story by the end?
0: yeah I mean, if you 've seen it it's 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 fantastic to watch as a fan, but actually there's some really hairy moments at the start i mean we we bowed out of the Asian Cup um, I think it's hard for me to talk about the Disney Docu series without the on pitch strategy strategy when we, before we sat down with our coaches we'd all done all the work to to pull together an understanding of why we weren't doing well at world cups we'd never done this before um And we'd also worked out that the Matildas for a long time were playing very low-ranked teams, and so Australia thought we were really great. Um, And then every now and again we'd beat a really big team. And so there's a couple of things. We learnt that we weren't playing uh, higher-ranked enough opposition, weren't playing enough European um, opposition, and we played a lot in Asia, mostly because um, it's more affordable to do so, Um, but we, we kept bowing out to European teams. Um, And the next really key thing was that we were relying on a large amount of match minutes for a good seven to eight players, rotating them through. They were playing some of the most minutes of any national team combined with their clubs, and that's not a good thing because back to that 23, you're going to rely on that 23rd player if they're not getting match minutes. Um, And not only that, we, we weren't certain that we had the squad depth that we had at the time and Courtney Vine wasn't in the time then and I, I keep raising her because she's got a big profile now but she absolutely was kind of on the periphery. And so he he had a job to do for the next three years, play harder teams, you know, on this three-year period. Um, you're going to uh, uh, bring in new, new blood. You're going to bring in new players. And as you can imagine, with those two things combined, it's going to get bumpy. And it did get bumpy. We we bowed out of the Asian Cup. It was really bad. Uh, we lost six 0 to to Spain um, at a time when we rested our our starting eleven. Like they they absolutely in the three year period needed that break off. And that's actually in the Disney docu series. sit around the table, gone, you know, you've got your strategy in place, and this is that whole conviction thing. Like, is this too much too soon? Is is three years too hard to squeeze all this in? And um, and then you're filming it. <laughs> so not only are we concerned about what the the output of this docu series is going to look like, it's applying more pressure to the team. There's a camera in their face. It's capturing all this bad stuff. Um, so if you watch it, it goes from bad, bad bad, 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 good, good, good to. you know, we played Sweden. This is when we really felt good about what we'd done um and and think about the the team within all that right we had a job to make sure that the media were educated on what we were doing and 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 tony was executing that yes in his own way but he's only executing what what we said we needed to do to win a world cup that he agreed would would get us there or sorry to, to perform well at a world cup and um, the Disney series, I guess, you know, it couldn't have worked out any better. We, we get to Sweden in our last game. We really needed a win actually because you're getting to the point where players haven't won a match in a while now and you're wondering if the process and strategy is right. We were at this point. And um, they beat Sweden 4-0 in Melbourne and we all looked at each other and I'm getting goosebumps now. Like the players knew, we knew. We go into the start of 2023 and they beat England. They beat England, one of the best teams in the world. And so we knew uh, the last match actually they played was a send-off match in Melbourne. They beat France. They beat France. They ended up being really important (laughs) (laughs) later on at the quarterfinal and so they were building muscle and confidence. Um, But... You know, as it turned out when we played France prior to the, the World Cup, we played every single top ten nation and, you know, that was by design and the diversity of who we played and uh, we'd just never done that before. So to film it, I mean, we chose Disney. It's it's quite interesting because um, that was separated through from the broadcast agreement with 10 um, because we, we really wanted to, um, you know, the... the the, the production that we went with was really important. Disney, trying to, you know, open new markets in the UK and also families. Um, you know, there's some interesting things that played out because if you've seen it, the, the team actually swear a fair, fair bit in it. Um, well, not a fair bit, a
1: couple times. Disney's now broken out from just being like, you yeah. know, like fun little films for children. That even back in the day, they probably actually weren't that appropriate if you watched them as an adult. That's a <laughs> that's a story for another day. But, but Disney
0: Disney are the storytellers. We we were a football organisation. We were we weren't going to get into any of that. But um, you know, we had a real moment uh, at the end of the the editing piece because uh, you can keep the swearing in um, because it's authentic to who they are. They're unapologetic. We also want. You know, young kids to see this, but it actually changes the rating, and which reduces exposure. So it, it doesn't automatically come up. Parents have to choose it now, and we chose to keep it in. It was a really hard decision, but when you're talking about the brand and culture, we thought it was important. Um, you know, and so like, there's all these little trade offs we had to make. Um, but yeah, it was the process was was much different to you know the, the end result, and, and we're pretty happy with the end result.
1: We're going to touch on, I guess legacy as well as the future of women's sport but I think it's fairly clear for anyone listening but as well as those in in the room right now that you are not only a stinger but also a trailblazer and that you have fundamentally changed you know from the inside what it means to kind of create real change that's going to impact so many people so I'm sure you probably get this question from people but like what advice do you have if there's someone sitting or, or listening who's like I want to create change inside of my organization how do I go about it? What advice do you have for someone?
0: Yeah, I I, I just simply think you can't do it by yourself. Um, it's and it's awfully difficult to to think you can and um, keep up the energy. I think it's surround yourself by with like minded people who are on board with that vision. Um, and I think more generally, that's that's best advice I, I was ever given was surround yourself by good people. I do that now. I. I'm actually, um, because I have high levels of commitment, it means that I'm very selective with where I spend my time because I know I'm going to be all in. Um, And so uh, it's surrounding yourself by good people. And when I mean good people, I don't mean people that are, you know, these people need to be able to challenge you and all the people that I spend time with are very happily, uh, you know, going to challenge me but they're also the people that lift me up and whether it's friends, colleagues,
1: yeah. Yeah. And I think you've said before that like sort of feedback and having those people who aren't just like yes people around you going great job, well done, scored a goal. is like actually like getting that critical feedback along the way and I think as employees it's always nice to hear when you're doing well. It's not always easy to hear when you get that sort of like you could have done better or like I believe there's something, you know, bigger that's possible for you here but getting that is how we actually end up growing.
0: Yeah, I think um, my second piece of advice is it's something that's really – I don't know. It's a it's a really kind of easy way to uh, affect change and challenge traditional thinking is by asking questions. Um, I'm sure it's highly annoying, um, and I think a lot of people would say that of me. I'm, and I don't know why it is, but I find it easy. I don't I don't feel vulnerable asking them because um, maybe it was my upbringing. Dad always kind of you know really highly valued uh, humility and being humble and. I don't see anything bad in in asking questions and it really does help challenge the thinking of those that that you're trying to influence.
1: So We talked about creating a better world by focusing on our work and if you talk about creating a better world, there was a stunning image, a couple of stunning images shared recently from the opening attendance of the Women's Super League in England from last season to this current season, but then also the A-League Women's season just kicked off this past week and the attendance record was broken twice on the same day. So clearly, the Women's World Cup has had a tremendous impact, not just on sport in this country and how we think about inspiring female athletes, but globally, we are seeing change. Football has always been called the world's game. What sort of a you know what sort of more change do you want to see to create a fairer world?
0: Yeah, well, um, I mean, I'm just going to use the metrics that I've I've forever been told were the the key metrics, and it's it's most likely because you know broadcast revenue makes up a large. Portion of a, a sporting organisation's revenue, but um, we broke all the records for TV programs. Um, it's we now that's that semi-final against England is the highest watched TV program of the history of TV. Uh, wow. and Since then, they
1: put in those, those new sort of viewership data, it's like yeah, it's crazy. It's,
0: uh, and the only the only thing that may have come close was Cathy's, um race,
1: which inspired you to.
0: That's right, yeah. I met Cassie during the World Cup actually and I told her that story that, you know, you inspired me to move on and full circle we, we broke your record. But <laughs> she's completely fine with it. Do you know what, you know what she told me? Um, we're at an event in Perth and she said um, she's got a daughter and her daughter just doesn't get the fuss about who she is. Like she, <laughs> no idea and I love that. Um, but you know when she found out who her mum was, when her idols met her mum? Uh, Cathy met the Matildas uh, during, well, pre-World Cup actually and she brought a daughter because she's like hardcore fan of Sam and she saw her idols idolising her mother. And
1: they were like, what's going on? And
0: and it was a beautiful moment for her that like for the first time the penny dropped for her daughter as to like the impact that she'd had on people and she said that was like, so there's this full circle Matilda's Cathy piece. But um, back to the, the records, they're important because... Uh, we never sat down three years ago and said, "You know what? We want to double what AFL get at a grand final for for average viewership." No, wasn't it? although that was an outcome. Um, you know, NRL state of origin. These are these are organisations that have been around since early nineteen hundreds. Matildas were established in um, nineteen seventy nine. You know, so significant less investment. Significant less you know, established as as a as a team and yes, yes, we can say it's a national team, but I fundamentally think that the the work we did the last three years and the way in which we positioned this team is and the way in which the community connected with it is probably how sports should have been designed. It, it really should have. Um, when we think about the, the rates of, when we think about social impact, the rates of um, violence against uh, women and children in, in many major men's events goes up. There's none of that here. Um, you know, alcoholic consumption at venues down. All these things we're, we're starting to learn about sport, um, yet it was highly commercial we sold the same amount of jerseys in the Matildas uh, jerseys going on sale in two days than we did the entire campaign for Qatar for the men. The entire, two days. So this thing's commercial. It drives social outcomes. Um, yet we've kind of overlooked it. And, and somehow it also managed to, you know, get in the hearts and minds of non-sporting fans. This is the first time our country has been united on anything. You know, and and we had 11, 11.2 million people. Um, that was the total reach that watched the um, the semi final, and the average figure is something we've always used for broadcast. But eleven point two, that's not even Optus's figures. So I've I've tried to do the math here. We had we had stadiums around the country with screens on.
1: All the pubs uh, that were full. Like, all the
0: pubs that were full. Yeah, that's not the real count. And so, you know, we've gone through COVID, we've had vaccine wars, you know, just gone through this horrible um, campaign around First Nations rights. And it's just the first time our country's come together. And it's really given me hope around the future of women's sport, but actually the role it plays in driving better outcomes in society. So I hope that our next, you know, broadcast deal and when we sit down, we actually think about we don't just think about the eyeballs, we think about what type of eyeballs they are and the impact of those eyeballs So, rather than the traditional metrics we've always used. So I'm, I'm hoping that we, our next step is to not just change what we do with this team but the broader ecosystem to support other women's codes as well.
1: Because this is, this is your life and I have all these quotes from you in the past that you don't remember saying. I am going to go back to 2012 because I think it's a beautiful journey and full circle moment. Yeah. So in 2012, you said in an interview, I think we're just a product of our media and what the media feeds us. Consumerism of male sports is high because that's what the media shows. So that's what both men and women will probably follow. I can understand it in a way because I grew up with rugby league and it was what I was exposed to as a kid. Hopefully that will change though with more media coverage of female athletes.
0: Great. I said that, did I? Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Would you say mission accomplished?
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the am not sure we've come out with this metric, but it's over $3 billion worth of media value. That's just unheard of and probably never happen again unless, you know, someone else repeats it. But, yeah, that's the change we needed.
1: Well, the Matilda's captured the hearts and minds of not only the country, but I think also the entire world. And like we're seeing, this is actually creating a better world through organisational change by strong leadership and by focusing on the culture This has been an absolute masterclass in a story that many of us know, but we've gone behind the scenes on it. So for everyone live here today and listening at home, can we please give Sarah a huge round of applause? Uh, If you would like to listen to the full episode of this, it will come out on the Culture First podcast in November. And if you want to sort of see, we'll um, potentially have some more assets from the Matildas that we'll put on the uh, podcast webpage. So you can head to cultureamp.com slash podcast or search on Spotify and Apple, give it a subscribe. And I really thank you to everyone who was here in the audience today for being part of this very special first ever live taping. Thank you. A huge thank you to Sarah Walsh for joining me on the Culture First podcast and a special shout out to the over 200 people who joined us live at South by Southwest Sydney to watch this recording. What an incredible episode. The timing of this episode was even more special, as the 2023 collective bargaining agreement from Football Australia has just been announced, and that has gone even further to create the conditions needed for high performance. After listening back to this conversation, it is clear to me that Sarah is a trailblazer. Her determination to create change is paying dividends for the organization and the players. Her ability to ask questions, collect feedback, and surround herself with good people that want to further a cause bigger than themselves is something that I truly admire. I feel incredibly lucky to have had the chance to get to know Sarah and go behind the scenes of a sport and a team that means so much to me personally. I wanted to connect this episode to another one that we released recently with Jamila Rizvi. In that episode, we spoke about how do we make work and the workplace a better, safer, and more equitable place for women. In this episode, you heard quotes from Sam Kerr, the captain of the Matildas, and Sarah, talk about what are the conditions that you need from your environment in order to perform at the highest level. My learning when reflecting on these two episodes is that Clearly, there is still so much work to do in this space. But hearing Jamila encourage men to be speaking up on issues of equality rather than leaving it all to women, and Sarah reminding us about being brave enough to always question the status quo, along with all of the other brilliant advice and insight that they offered, gives me hope. It gives me hope that we can all play a part in making work work for women. I've been your host, Damon Klotz, and the Culture First podcast is brought to you by the team here at CultureAmp, the world's leading employee experience platform. You can learn more about CultureAmp by heading to cultureamp.com. We believe in creating a better world of work. If that's important to you too, please subscribe and leave us a review to make sure that you don't miss a single episode as we build a community together where we share stories to inspire us all to create a better world of work.